Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Uh, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First John, chapter 4. First John chapter four, as we continue our studies in the book of assurance, we're going to look at verses 12 through 16 this morning, but I will begin reading at verse seven, all the way to verse 19 to set the context when we can't see God. So we'll begin reading at verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent the son as savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been uh, been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are thankful for the manifestation of your love in Jesus Christ. We are thankful that he who is the word is the one who became flesh and dwelt among your people. And we are thankful that in him is life. And this life was the light of men. And we are thankful that we have life in him. We are thankful that as the creator of this world, you made it in the space of six days and called it good. And you've given us life but we are thankful more for eternal life. We are thankful for life abundant that we have in Christ Jesus. We know, O God, that you have life in yourself, and we know that you do not need anything from us. Your life is not derived, but ours is. And so we are thankful that we have an everlasting life that awaits us in Christ Jesus. And we know that we cannot see you. We know that you are spirit. We know that you are invisible. We know that you are incomprehensible. Yet we are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and in Christ Jesus. And so we are thankful that when we get to the celestial city, when we come to Zion in full, we know that we shall be gazing upon Christ forever. We shall be seeing him as he is. And as we see him, we see the father. And so we are thankful for your accommodation. We are thankful that you do speak to us. Yet as we consider how you have revealed yourself and what you've said in your word, Help us to approach you with reverence and with awe. You are God and we are man and we are undeserving even to dwell with you. And yet you have given us salvation and you've given us life and you do dwell with us. So help us to know of your abiding. Help us to know of your nearness. Help us to know of your dwelling amongst us. We're thankful that you dwell amongst the saints as we gather. And we're thankful that we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray today would be a great time of assurance for your people. When we can't see you, we can know you and we can know you in Christ Jesus. 
And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please show them their sin. Please show them their need for Christ. And as they hear about Christ, may you work with the Spirit by the Word, or well, by the Word with the Spirit, uh, to save their souls. So we're thankful for all that you do. We're thankful that you are God. We are thankful for this blessing it is to gather as your people. And we pray that as we do so, that you would speak to us as we come and worship you, that you would work in us. And we pray you work in us now by your spirit. We also ask that you give us illumination by your spirit as we come and consider great mysteries concerning the Trinity and the incarnation. We know that we need your help to do so. Help us to confess even if we do not comprehend it. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the problem of fallen man, even before our audiovisual culture, is that we wish to see God with our eyes. We wish to see God and we wish to smell God. We wish to use our senses to know the God of heaven and earth. And the, perhaps the assumption is that we think if we see God with our eyes rather than believe on what is said about him, we might have some sort of comfort. And certainly throughout the ages, this is why perhaps people have turned to idols. There's something visual. There's something that they can see. This is why the writer to the Hebrews writes to the Hebrews because they were concerned with persecution and they wanted to go back to something that they saw. They didn't see Christ die on the cross, but they could see bulls and goats. You see, we want that. We want to see something. We want to know God in that way. And the problem also arises here with these heretics in the book of 1 John who said that they know God by experience and perhaps that they have seen God. And perhaps one evangelical sort of crutch that we can have or one we view as an assurance is pictures of Christ. We wish to see something. We wish to behold something rather than believing what is said about our God. And as John reminds us here, it's not about what we see, but about what we hear and what we believe. Our assurance concerning God and Christ is what we hear. And our assurance that we have in Christ is the assurance that we need. And remember, this book is all about assurance. John is writing to the hearers to encourage them, to uplift them, to remind them in the face of threats where their assurance lies. And their assurance lies in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the word of life, whom the apostles have seen and now declare to the people at Ephesus. That was the prologue. That was the start of John's, uh, John's uh, letter. Uh, certainly, John also has a prologue in his gospel as well with some parallels. And very much, first, John is structured like a sermon. We're in the section how we live as children and how we have tests to give ourselves uh, assurance. There are tests to help us know that we are of the children of God. And the section prior in verses 7 through 11, it's an exhortation. We ought to love one another. But that basis for loving one another is based on who God is and what he has done for us. And perhaps then a question might be raised based upon what these heretics have said. But I can't see God. What if I can't see God? And the problem is we cannot see God. God is invisible. God is incomprehensible. How can I know who God is? How can I know that God's, God abides in me if I cannot see him? And we must all have an honest assessment with ourselves. Even as the people of God, we still go through times of doubt. And perhaps sometimes we ask that question ourselves when we feel insecure, just like the Hebrews did. 
But we must be reminded. That's why we come to church. That's why we read the Bible. We must be reminded that our security isn't with what we see, but who we believe upon. And so in 1 John 4, verses 12 through 16, John is assuring his hearers that though they cannot see God, God abides in them. They can know God. God is with them. And one evidence to know that God is with them is by our love for one another and by our faith in Christ. We don't see God, but we can have assurance that we know this God. And the two sort of reminders, and they've been repeated throughout this book, is our love for one another and our faith in Christ. And so he's drawing their attention to this. He's reminding them of who Christ is, who God is. And even though we can't see God, we can have great assurance. And so we'll look at this assurance, though we can't see God, under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see when, when we can't see God, verses 12 and 13. And then secondly, we'll see when we see Jesus in verses 14 through 16. So when we can't see God, verses 12 and 13. And then when we, and then when we see Jesus in verses 14 through 16. So can't see God, but we do see Jesus. So let's first look at when we can't see God in verses 12 and 13. And so in verses 7 through 11, we saw... The love of God, the love that God has for us, who God is, God is love. We talked about the essence, what God is, and what he does in his works. And one test of assurance is love for one another. And again, the foundation is based upon who God is and what he has done. God's love is incomprehensible, isn't it? When we consider that God is love, it is difficult for us to grasp what that means. And even when we consider the word love and what we ought to do with it, sometimes we hear it, we think we understand it, but what does it actually mean? It means doing good toward another person. And as we talked about, God is not moved by anything. God has perfect life in himself. We use the term impassable. God is not moved by anything from without. God does not have emotions like you and I do. God is not affected by anything from without, but yet God loves. And that's the beautiful thing, isn't it? Even though God is not moved by anything from without, yet what he does for us and how we see his love is that he does good towards others. And how does he do good towards others, namely his people, is that he removes our misery. He he forgives us of our sins. His wrath is turned away in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God has done great good towards us. He doesn't increase or decrease in love for he is love. And he has done good toward wretched people like us. And so then John goes on perhaps deal with a claim perhaps an implied claim based upon the heretics that are present or threatening the church. Namely, we have seen God. And so John writes and gives them the assertion, gives them the theological statement, the reality, verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. There's a biblical claim, and certainly we can glean theological claims based upon what is said in God's word. Other places, John 4, 24, God is invisible. He can't, we cannot be seen. God is incomprehensible. 1 Timothy 6, 16, no man can approach unto his light. What that means is, and as our confession says, we cannot comprehend God in his, uh, his essence. Job eleven seven, talking about the infinity of God. He is not finite. We could say that God is not finite with respect to space. He is 
immense. Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? I mean, Job is a great book on the doctrine of God, isn't it? It's a great book on theology proper. When I say theology proper, I just mean studying God in his essence. And once again, it's a key theme that we saw last week. And now this week, once again, is based upon who God is, who God is and the assurance that that provides for the people of God. So we must have, there is this claim, we cannot see God at any time. Therefore, we should not make any idols. It is futile to even try to make God and try and picture God and try and draw God and try and build God in any sort of way. Idols only desecrate. Pictures of Jesus are not adequate. And remember, the hypostatic union helps us with this. There's one who, the Son, God the Son, who took on a human flesh. That is, he's fully God and fully man. And so to just have one half, I don't even like to speak in that way, but for the sake of argument, one part of the nature, or or, or one half of the person, the, 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 the human side of it, it only shows one nature. It's like me drawing a picture of you. I am, I like to think I'm a man of many talents, but art is not one of them. It would look terrible. It would look awful. It is not the original. I have to say, I will distort that image. That's what we do with pictures of Jesus. We distort who our God is. That's a hard thing sometimes because in evangelicalism, it's perfectly fine. And then people come in here and I say, you should probably not have any nativity things out there. And you should probably get rid of those things. And people are shocked when I say such things because we desecrate God when we make a picture of Christ. Now, there are examples in the Old Testament where God appears to man and God appears, he reveals. But when he does so, it's accommodation to us. Remember, God is God and we are man. God is infinite. We are finite. And so we need him to accommodate to us, which is what he does in his word. And even with the theophanies of the Old Testament, you know, we have the burning bush. It is for us. Or even as we see the the glory of the Lord passing by Moses, even God says no man can see the face of God and live. God accommodates in those theophanies as he speaks speaks to man because again just metaphysically based upon being versus being god is god we are man we cannot comprehend perfection right because we're finite we cannot comprehend that because we're finite we cannot comprehend infinity just try you can't do it because we are bound by time we can't comprehend eternity We have no idea. That's why from everlasting to everlasting, using accommodative language to help us with that. Or immensity. God cannot be measured. I'm five foot 11. I was hoping to be five or six foot two. That's what my dad said I would be. But I'm just average. I'm sure there are shorter guys that would like to be five foot 11. But you can measure me. You can measure my space and where I am. But God, you cannot do such a thing. That's why it's hard for us to comprehend who God is. That's why we need God's word. And that's why God's word is accommodated to us. It is baby talk. And so if we can't see God, how then can we know this God? How can we know that he abides with his people? Because no man can see God at any time. Well, John does provide some assurance for us. Verse 12, if we love one another, 
God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. He continues the same test of assurance. If we love one another, if we do good to other people based upon the commandments, we see that in chapter two, verse seven, we see a tangible way to care for our brethren in need in chapter uh, chapter three. If you see your brother in need and you shut up uh, and you have this world's good to see your brother in need, shut up your heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? That is, if there's someone in need, we are moved by that, right? We are acted upon based upon someone who is in need. Should we not then do good towards that person? And then in 323, boiling down to basically our Christian life, we believe on Christ and we love one another. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. It's a test to know whether we are gods, our gods. Uh, uh, it's a test to know whether we are his and it's based it manifests in our love for one another. We haven't seen God, but do we love one another? And he kind of builds to this point in verses 20 and 21. We don't see God, but we see others. And he says in verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And just goes to show you as well, another way to love God is by loving one another. Certainly the first four commandments are how we love God by way of, you know, worship primarily, the day of worship, the demeanor in worship, the object of worship, namely God. But how we also love God and honor God is how we love our fellow man especially spouses. You know, you want to love God, you love your spouse. That is how you love God. Certainly, uh, so that, that is, uh, uh, so it's not just, you know, sometimes I think we think linearly in the West, sometimes it's, I must honor God. It, that's all fine. We love God, then our spouse, then our children, then our job or what, you know, that order. That's fine. But how we love God is by working hard at our job. How we love God is by being solid parents. All those things are in view. If you say you love God, but hate your brother, you are a liar, as John says in 420. And so if we love one another, then we can have this assurance that God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. God dwells with us. The God of heaven and earth, the God we can't see dwells with us. We have our union with Christ. We have the outpouring of the spirit. We can commune with the God of heaven and earth. Remember man's chief aim. It was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the privilege of Christians, isn't it? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. God, who does not need us, created us that we might commune with him. Doesn't make the fall all the more heinous with what Adam did how he broke that communion, how he barred man from entering into that, that garden and taking from the tree of life. That's why we need the last Adam. That's why we need Christ Jesus, that we might then walk with God and God abides with us. And so we can be assured, not perfectly, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. Talking about perfect love, the perfection of that love. Notice it's his love. 
our love for him, but also he as the source for us. How do we know that it has been perfected in us when it comes to its appointed end? For A, walking with God, and B, loving his people. Another way to phrase this is how we show sincerity. It's been perfected in us with our love and care for other people. Gill says, but the love with which God is loved is here designed. It is called his because he is both the object and the author of it. And this is in no effect as to degrees. Yea, sometimes instead of abounding and increasing, it goes back in us. It is left and waxes cold and it will not have its completion till the saints come to heaven. Then, then it will be in its full perfection and glory when faith and hope shall be no more. But the sense is that this grace of love is sincere and hearty without dissimulation. It is unfeigned love. It is in deed and in truth and not in word and in tongue only. And this appears to be so by the love which is shown to the brethren, the children of God. So that love to God and the saints is perfected by love to the brethren, just in, in such sense as faith is made perfect by works. So it comes to its appointed end. We are created for a purpose to love God and love one another. And it is shown sincere in our love and care for one another based upon what God has said and how he has defined it. So we can have assurance. We can know him based upon our love for one another. But we can also know that we abide in him in verse 13 by the spirit. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. The source of our ability to love one another is a supernatural work. The source of our ability to love our brethren comes from God and specifically the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who has been poured out. We see the language in Galatians 5 of the fruit of the Spirit. How is it that we have love and joy and peace and faithfulness and kindness and self-control? It is by the Spirit. Galatians 5 also talks about remaining corruption. We battle, we wrestle the Spirit against the flesh. We have remaining struggles, we have remaining sin, but we also have the Holy Spirit. And one day we will be perfected in that we will no longer be able to sin. But as we walk this world, we can be assured that we do have the Holy Spirit. How do we love God? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Love is from God and love is of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. There is that connection with verse 7. Love is of God. And if you see in verse 13, he has given us from or of his Holy Spirit. And as we said, if nobody can see God, as 1 Corinthians 2 says, the Spirit searches the deep things of God. The only one who can search the deep things of God, that's accommodative language for us, but the only one who can search the deep things of God is one who is God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Once again, it is a Trinitarian foundation for our Christian walk and for our assurance. And even in 1 John 4, how do we know we are of the Spirit? By what we say. Galatians 5, how do we know we are of the Spirit? Based upon the fruit that we exhibit. That is how we know that we have the Holy Spirit. Not in miracles, not in feelings, not in tongues, not in prophecies, but based on what we say about Christ and the outworking we see in our life. 
You might not always feel it, dear brethren, but these assurances are applicable for all of us. Do you believe on Christ? Yes. Have you noticed and seen and uh, recognized, not perfectly, but some growth that happens in your life? You can be assured that you are God's and God abides with you. And the assurance is if Christ, uh, Christ by the Spirit abides in us, we are united to him, that can never be taken away. And the assurance is the life God's people lead now, we have communion with God, even though we don't see him. And we have communion with God by the Spirit, and we have communion with God, and it's manifested in our love for one another. And so the assurance is we abide in the God that we cannot see. We abide in him now. That's the whole temple purpose, right, of the Old Testament. The temple motif as the Bible unfolds, driving to Christ who is the temple. Driving to Christ who builds his temple. He builds his body. And even we, our bodies, are a temple of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who indwells us. The life we now live is new life with God. It has been inaugurated. We know in part there's an alreadiness to it, but there's still a not yetness to it. There's still the consummation that we await. And so even as we await, though, we can be assured that we are new life in him. God, who is life in himself, created life. He redeems and gives life to those who are dead, that we might have life with God and have it abundantly. Isn't that the purpose and reason why Jesus is called the word of life? Because he is the word who communicates life to us. He is the one who gives life to us and life can only be found in him. So we abide now, but thankfully there's the promise we shall abide forever. This is why 1 Peter 1 is one of my favorite passages. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. And following. What we have, the foundation and reason for what we have, the trials and struggles we go through in this life, the fact we don't see Christ, but we can be assured. But verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is incorruptible and, uh, and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved for you in heaven, who are kept for that by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's why we want Christ to come back. We want him to return and usher in the new heavens and new earth. Then he goes to the realities of the present world in which we live. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though, you, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. The genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Doesn't Jesus say to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and believe? You see, dear brethren, there are those who have seen Jesus, yet you and I have not. And yet we believe upon his name. 
That is a supernatural work that God does to believe upon his name. And we shall abide with God forever in the Lord Jesus Christ. We shall abide with God in Christ where we see God. So though we can't see God in his essence, we can see God in another. And even though we haven't seen that one, we believe him to be true. And this is what John goes on to communicate in verses 14 through 16. When we get to the new heavens and new earth, we shall see Christ as he is. So when we can't see God, we can be assured that God dwells with us and abides with us by the spirit. But thankfully, we have seen Christ. And so when we see Jesus in verses 14 through 16, and notice what the apostles say, or John really with this apostolic witness, once again, uh, a witness and authority, verse 14, we have seen, it's emphatic, we, the apostles have seen, these other guys have not, we have seen and testify and bear witness to you that the father has sent the son as savior of the world. This goes with verse 12. The same wording. No one has seen God, but we have seen the outworking of what God has done. We have seen the revelation of God in the sending of the Son. Even with the prologue, our eyes have seen and beheld. Our eyes have touched. We saw he who is the word of life. And then in the uh, the beginning of John's gospel, no one... No one, once again, using that language, no one has seen God, yet he who is in the bosom of the Father. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his, the flesh's glory, as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Then verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. Once again, the only ones who see God and know God in depth in the Bible are the Son, who took on human flesh, and the Holy Spirit. Which means what? They are God. And thankfully, the one who, the Son, takes on human flesh, and we have the fullest revelation of God in the one who is Son. And the apostles saw him. That's why they were set apart as apostles. They saw Christ. They saw him. They saw his miracles. They saw what he did. They saw that he had been resurrected from the dead. And they testify. Again, we haven't seen Christ with our eyes, but we have heard about him, haven't we? Because based upon what the apostles have said, this is Jesus, believe upon him. And thankfully, the assurance is, based upon God's word, it's not just we hear about Christ, but we hear Christ. That's some of the things we emphasized the past couple of weeks. As the word of God goes forth, you are hearing Christ. As the word of God is spoken and preached faithfully, it is Christ who speaks. That's why in the Bible that uh, pastors and men who are set apart to preach the gospel are called ambassadors for a reason ambassadors proclaim the message on behalf of the king as if the king himself were speaking. You come and hear Jesus. You hear Jesus in your word and you hear Jesus when the word of God goes forth. How shall they hear of him? How shall they hear him, uh, believe on him whom they have not heard? Jesus is the one who speaks in his word. He is the prophet 
who speaks. Even as you see uh, in the letters in Revelation, we see whoever has ears, uh, ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But the start of each of those letters is whom speaking? The one who holds the churches in his hands. How do we hear, dear brethren? How do we hear Christ in his word and as the gospel message is preached? And these men have testified to that very thing. The important thing is, do you believe it? Do you hear it? Do you believe it to be true? You won't see it. You didn't see him die on the cross, but do you believe it to be true? Because we see the object, the content of what is testified to, that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Notice once again, it is Trinitarian. Notice the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. 1 John 5, 20, talking about Jesus as God. In his Son, Jesus Christ, this is true God and eternal life. The Bible is full of passages that speak about how the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And notice we see what they testify. We see God's love manifested toward us in the work of the Son And it's what these men have testified, that the Father has sent. We've used the language a lot here of mission and procession as we try to make sure we don't say things about God that we shouldn't. The idea of procession refers to the eternal relation of origin. And once again, as we do theology and as we read God's word, we must distinguish God in himself and God for us. God in himself is with respect to the processions, the one who is eternally begotten of the father and the one who is eternally spirated of the father and the son. That is God in himself. That is, there is one God, three persons we distinguish by person, not by essence. So God in himself, God has perfect life in himself. God doesn't need anything from you and I, and yet God does things for us. That's what the missions are. That's part of the economy of salvation. God in himself and what God does for us. Anything not God is for us. God creating the world, that's for us. God saving sinners, that's for us. And we see this in the mission. And we see the mission language in the sending language. Again, we don't distinguish in nature and being But it makes sense based upon the fact that the one who is eternally begotten is the one who is sent to take on human flesh without uh, giving up any of his divine attributes. That is heresy. That is wrong. That implies change in God, which there cannot be. But the mystery is that the one who is God does not stop being God, yet he takes on human flesh. Fully God and fully man. He's got a human soul. He's got a human body. He's got a human will. And he's got a divine will. That's tough for us to wrap our heads around that. But it is for us men and for our salvation. See how once again John is using Trinity to assure and encourage the people of God. The Father has sent the Son. And notice we see that for us language in as the savior of the world. We see the, we see that John, uh, the father sent the son, the son took on human flesh to save wretched people. 
I know a lot of ink is spilt on what world means. Does this mean that God died or Jesus died for everybody on the cross, every single person without exception? The answer is no. World in John 4:42 refers to the Samaritans. So it refers to people without distinction. Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Jesus dies for his sheep. He lays down his life for his sheep and none of his sheep shall be snatched from his hands. He came to save his people from their sins. But that ought to give us great joy. I know people like get freaked out over that very thing. That's unfair. Brethren, we sinned against a holy God. We deserve everlasting damnation. And yet that many, a great multitude that no man can number are saved because the father sent the son to be savior of the world. And so what I think here is the language of world, if you were speaking to a Jew, and this applies to John three sixteen, if you were speaking to a Jew and you said world, it would have meant Gentile. Jew and Gentile. There is salvation for Jew and Gentile. But I also think there is a, an apostolic reason, which is what we saw in 1 John 2, 2. John was highlighting that salvation is not just for the elite. Remember the, remember the heretics were teaching that salvation is only for those who have special knowledge. We have this experience. We're saved. But the writers, John is saying, no, it's not just for the elite, but it's for all. It's for others as well. It's for those who might not have a PhD in theology. There is salvation for people in this world. If you believe on Christ, you shall be saved. He came to be the savior of the world. So there's this apostolic witness. There's Trinitarian reference points here. When we talk about God and himself, theologia and God for us, his economy to, to save sinners And then we see what we do. Verse 15, the further assurance we can have in light of this testimony. Whoever confesses, verse 15, that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. If you believe upon Christ, if you accept, receive, and rest upon him, know that God abides in you. God abides in you and you in God. Because you've believed upon the name of his son. And as 1 John 4 uh, 4 verses 1 through 6 highlighted, no one apart from the work of the Holy Spirit can say that Jesus is the Christ. No one apart from the Holy Spirit can say that Jesus is Lord. That only comes from the work of God Almighty. And if you believed upon him, notice the assurance that you have not just that he came in the flesh but also that he is god he is fully god and fully man and perhaps there is some connection with what we see in 1 9 concerning forgiveness grammar can be encouraging here now sometimes people make a big deal about grammar when it comes to especially the past tenses it's once for all time and i think i've said before we typically just speak normally i i ate a donut yesterday. I'm not communicating to you that I ate that donut once for all time. So people make a big deal out of it. But I do think we can make a big deal out of it here. In 1 John 1, 9, for the people of God who still struggle with sin in this present world, if we confess our sins, that's a present tense. The implication is we're going to have ongoing struggles with sin and we confess them to God most high. It is a continuous thing. It's past tense here. If you confess 
that Jesus is the Christ. If you confess that Jesus is the son of God, you must believe that he is God. That is your first confession of faith. That is when you believe upon Christ and the ongoing effects of what Christ has done in you and that profession of faith. Whoever confesses, whoever professes that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Again, this is all meant to be encouraging for us. And again, it's filled with theology, Trinity, who our God is in himself, God for us in the salvation of the son, the application and the benefits, namely faith in Christ Jesus and the Christian life in which we live. It is all Trinitarian. The mystery of it is revealed here, not, uh, not that we comprehend it, but we confess it to be true. That, the God, that, that, that we believe in one God in Trinity and Trinity and unity. That we believe that Jesus is one, uh, one person with two natures. He is, really is God and he really became man. One who? One son, not two. And two natures, not one. And notice with all of this how the Trinity is absolutely crucial for salvation. People balk at the Athanasian Creed where it says, he who must believe on the, uh, who, who believes on the Trinity must be, or he who must be saved but must believe on the Trinity. The Trinity is vital, dear brethren, because we're talking about who our God is and what he has done for us, and we're talking about who Christ is. I know I've harped on us lately. It's not, if I harp on you, it's because I like you. I'm trying to encourage you. I'm trying to remind you. I'm trying to say, you have the mental ability to study these things and read about the Trinity. And here's why. I was listening to a podcast on Wednesday night about creeds. And in 1679, there's a thing called the Orthodox Creed. It was by the Arminian Baptists at the time the general Baptist. Our forefathers were the particular Baptist with respect to salvation, particular redemption versus general. So they were the Arminians. Listen to what they say about the creeds. Just, just listen, just listen. If you're tired, you're sleepy. Now's the time to pinch your leg. Okay. So just listen. Creed. So talking about the Nicene, the apostles and the Athanasian creeds, as they are commonly called, ought thoroughly to be received and believed. For we believe they may be proved by most undoubted authority of Holy Scripture and are necessary to be understood of all Christians and to be instructed in the knowledge of them by the ministers of Christ, instructed with respect to the Trinity, according to the analogy of faith recorded in sacred scriptures upon which these creeds are grounded. Now for the next part, fathers pay attention. And catechistically, that is taught by question and answer, opened and expounded in all Christian families for the edification of young and old. Brethren, we need to know the Trinity, don't we? We cannot say it's too hard. It's too difficult. I don't want to read on it. I have all this. Brethren, we need to study it. We need to know it again, not that we comprehend it, but that we know who our God is. Is And it's not so much that we can't do it. It's just sometimes we won't do it or we don't want to do it. But brethren, we can do it. And notice fathers need to know this stuff to teach their children these things. 
He goes on to say, which might, or they, they go on to say, which might be a means to prevent heresy in doctrine and practice, these creeds containing all things in a brief manner. They are necessary to be known fundamentally in order to our salvation, to which end they might, may be considered and best understood of all men. Now remember, brethren, creeds are not on par with Scripture, but they're a great summary of what Scripture says. And we cannot miss the fact that the Spirit works through the church as well, especially providentially, not to inspire new, not to inspire new books, but to guide his church with respect to truth. Brethren, that's a great creed, isn't it? That's a great statement. That comes from Arminians, dear brethren. There's some Calvinists today that wouldn't be able to touch that uh, with a 10-foot pole. See, brother, I'd rather take that than some Calvinists today with their understanding of the Trinity, because the Trinity is vital and important. So, again, I harp, but I, I love you. I encourage you. Please just go home if you haven't done it. I commanded it like several weeks ago. Read the creeds. Do it today. I'm going to have a quiz later on. Please go do that and understand it, because it is meant to be encouraging, isn't it? The triune God who, who dwells with us. And we can be assured that this God dwells with us. And then notice in verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. We have known and believed it. We've known it and believed it, dear brethren. Isn't that the emphasis throughout this book? What You might know that you have eternal life. That you might know it and believe it. That God does love his people. Brethren, God loves his people. And the way that we see God love his people is in Christ, who was that propitiation for our sins. That is where our encouragement lies. That is where our hope lies. It lies in Christ. And it lies in God. For he goes on to say, God is love. Coming back once again to that statement, God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And remember, God's love does not wax or wane. God is love. God is love. That's what simplicity taught us, right? God is without parts. God is love. And his love abides with us. And he abides in us. And we see him abide in us in our love for one another and our love for Christ, our faith in Christ. And if we believed on Christ and love one another, notice, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. That's the assurance that God gives us, doesn't he? In Christ Jesus, God abides with us. We have assurance in the Christ who was seen and whom we believe. And so, brother, the important thing to ask is, are you persuaded by God's love for you? Have you believed upon him? Do you take him at his word? Even though you haven't seen God, even though you don't uh, smell God, do you believe upon him? The apostles have seen and they bear witness. The son was really sent into this world to be the savior for his people. He really is God and he really did die as that perfect sacrifice. That is where our assurance ultimately lies, doesn't it? That's the main thrust of our confession in chapter 18 on assurance. It is in Christ Jesus and his finished work for us. That is where our assurance lies. That is where we can be assured that we abide in God and God in us. And if you're an unbeliever here today, the reality is you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you will never be able to see God. That cannot 
happen. But if you want to know God in a positive, favorable way, right now you're under the wrath of God, but you want to know God, believe upon Christ and you shall be saved. Look to Christ, believe and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and you will have eternal life and eternal life with God. Otherwise, you will die forever. You cannot have eternal life or dwell with God in any other but Christ Jesus, who came as the Savior of the world. Believe on him. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we have come to consider difficult things today, difficult for our mind to comprehend, yet we are thankful for what you have revealed in your word, that the Father has sent the Son to be Savior of the world, that God is love. You are love itself. We know that our love grows cold, our love increases and decreases, and we are thankful that your love is perfect, immutable. Your love is unchangeable and eternal and infinite. And yet we are thankful that you reveal your love to us in the work of the Son. Thank you for the mystery of the Incarnation. Thank you for the mystery of the Trinity. We pray that we would love you more and that as we walk this world, that we would grow in the knowledge of you and grow in our love for one another, that we would grow in our knowledge of our triune God, who you are in yourself and what you have done for us. And as we do so, may it not be viewed as a drudgery, but even as we seek to think through these things, give us that spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit, to understand it. Give us diligence, but even give us joy as we seek to know you all the more. We pray that you'd forgive us for not trying. Please forgive us for not thinking. Please forgive us for not even opening up certain things. And we know that there is forgiveness in Christ Jesus. So we pray that you would forgive us. And we're thankful that our standing before you, your abiding in us and we with you, is because of Christ. And we're thankful that your people uh, have the Holy Spirit and we know that you abide with us. So we pray that we would be encouraged today by what we have heard. We pray that we be filled today by what we have heard. We pray that you'd uplift us by what we have heard. And we pray that any here today who do not know you, we pray that they would be saved by what they have heard as well. Help them to look to Christ by faith. And may they find everlasting life in him. And we are thankful that though we cannot see you, we love you. And we long to see Christ as he is. So give us that comfort and encouragement as we go into the world. And we pray these things in the name of Christ.